this time we'll set ourselves free back online maybe for the last time and join us for a new episode of the valley beyond a westworld podcast this is mike this is caroline and this is paul tonight we're talking about the season maybe series finale of westworld it was episode eight of season four k sarah sarah it was written by allison chapker and jonathan nolan a guy we've talked a little bit about jonah if you're nasty jonah if you're nasty or know him well uh, Allison is an executive producer on the show, but this is their only writing credit for Westworld. Uh, the, and obviously Jonathan Nolan is a co-creator and has written many episodes and directed and, but has not written anything yet this year. This is his first writing credit this season. So. Allison has been at both of the events that I've attended for Westworld this, you know, leading up to season four. Allison was on Lisa Joy's hip, like partner in crime style. If you look at Allison's IMDb credit, she must come from the J.J. Abrams stable. People forget that Bad Robot is a, is a pr- production company on the show. She was on Lost. She was on Fringe. She oh. was connected to basically everything J.J. has done or, or everything that Bad Robot has done in like the last 20 years. It seems like she has been connected to. You know, it's it's funny how that how that works. Even people that are just sort of brush up against the stable, they're still owe something to it. You know, like yeah. year, years yeah. ago, we got to talk to Ryan Condal, the guy who created uh, Colony, and someone asked him in the in the audience we were in asked him uh, about casting, and he said that the casting person he got for Colony was the same person for The Force Awakens. Because of Carlton Cuse's connection with uh, Lost with JJ, and that's how they got that casting person to be on a TV show. It, the, the, the JJ reaches far and wide. He did get a he did get a mention at the Westworld um, premiere. Lisa Joy did give him a, a thank you after thanking everyone else in the audience. Uh, yeah, I mean, she, I, I'm looking. I, I pulled it up. Uh, Allison starting all the way back on Alias, Alias, Lost, Fringe. Westworld, those are the obvious bad robot connected shows that I can find. I mean, she's had a lot of different series where she's been a writer and a producer on. But yeah, I mean, going all the way back, if you go back to Alias with JJ, you're like in the club. You know, that's, like, <laughs> that's like being Freaks and Geeks level entry with like Judd Apatow, you know? 
way, way back. Uh, the episode was directed by Richard J. Lewis. Richard should sound familiar to you. This is the sixth episode they've directed for Westworld, including the season four premiere, The Auguries. Uh, he's also an executive producer on the show. But yeah, so he's he's doing the bookend. He's doing the classic bookend, directing the premiere and the finale. Listeners, I assume that you guys have watched the episode. If you have not, there's going to be spoilers. And this is not a recap, so we're not going to talk about every single thing that happened, but we're going to talk about the things we love, the things we hated, and of course, the questions we're left with. And if you like the way that we talk about things, then please remember to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast. Probably just, you know, subscribe to the main podcast because we don't know what's going to happen to the Westworld show in the future so just go to the pod clubhouse main feed and subscribe to that and then, you know subscribe to all of the pod clubhouse shows we've got that's like even 30, better yeah just we've got like 30 it. different feeds if you just put in pod clubhouse and just click subscribe 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 you know your honor coming back for a new season season two we're gonna be covering that one kevin can fuck himself coming back uh handmaid's tale coming back in september we're covering that one we we've got you guys covered once westworld ends uh, so just go subscribe to all of the shows, including the main feed. Uh, <laughs> let's start with Jonah. Before we get into season slash series finale talk, I want to talk about Jonathan Nolan be- only because we've spent on this podcast this season a lot of time, I think, talking about his fingerprints and whether or not they were felt on the show this season or rather whether the direction the show took this season was evidence of a lack of fi- his fingerprints. Now, as a co-writer of this episode, did you guys feel it? Did you feel a Jonah effect in this, the way this final episode played out? Not totally. In, in certain elements, kind of drawing the, the strings closed on the gigantic plot of Dolores slash Christina existing as essentially the city's computer and that explaining how she could walk amongst the streets and feel like she was there and creating kind of an existence to wake herself up. That all felt like probably him closing out probably a starting point that could have been his idea. However, there were still long periods of exposition throughout this episode to make sure that we knew what was happening. Basically, Teddy saying <laughs> all the stuff that he said to Christina. So there was no question left. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it was some yes, some no. There was a vibe there that I knew that he was in the writer's room again. I can't exactly point to anything in particular, but you know, sometimes how there's just, I don't know, an overall air that you're like, mm, yes, this has a flavor of this particular writer. That's how I felt, I guess. This felt like it was shot alone. I know that sounds a little weird, but and I know that that oftentimes, you know, episodes are shot out of order and all kinds of things happen. But there's something about this one that seems like they could have filmed it the first week and then he went off and did other things. And and maybe the rest of the season kind of took its own kind of journey. It felt like this was then like plunked on the end. Like it feels very standalone and it's I don't know, just the feel of it. What did you think about the 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 use of like the the gamer language or did you notice it Caroline? Oh sure I did. I know that camper business was definitely gamer biz. I mean, everything at that very beginning part, I mean, didn't that just like stink of <laughs> because we hadn't had anything like that exact kind of gamer kind of actiony. It didn't feel like the soft 
computer, there's a girl, there's a whatever. Like, it didn't have that right. same feel. I mean, it was much more like... Visceral, violent. Yeah, definitely Race. violent and definitely, yeah. like, much much more, like, stomping through the city and just this... I don't know, I just had a different well, flavor. Well, uh, I mean, they, they went scorched earth. I mean, that is probably going to be my biggest issue if this is the end of the, the series is the ray of hope, the, the sunshine, the, the, the rainbow here uh-huh. is... Very dim. But see, maybe that's where I'm getting that standalone feel is because, again, I'm a builder. I'm a creator. I'm the one who wants to leave a legacy kind of feel. And so there was something about this that, like I said, it could have just been filmed months apart from the rest of the season because it just felt so not sentimental, not attached, not leaning on the rest of it. Like there was no sentimentality of getting rid of everything and everybody. I mean, at the end of the day, all you really needed to see before you watch this finale was the first Bernard episode. That episode where he is with Akichita in the sublime, you only need to watch that scene. And basically it fills in everything that you need to know in order to watch, I think, this finale episode. So that's where I'm getting that not attached, right? Where there's like this feeling of like, you could have gotten a little background and then watched this. You would have been as lost or as... Informed. As informed... (laughs) had you not watched the majority of the season in order to watch this because it was such a radical departure from the Holoris led world, which is what it was for seven episodes. This was classic. And it really starts at the end of episode seven with the unceremonious killing of Maeve, then Holoris and then Bernard in quick succession, the flip tonight. And you know what I call the city turning into a John wick movie talking about the video game language Right before he kills Holoris, he says to her, this has always been a game. I've just kicked it up to the expert level, which is video game talk, right? When you're setting your difficulty, you know, level, do you want like the noob level or do you want expert level? You know, if you're playing, then to play Call of Duty for the first time, you have to set your difficulty level. So the video game talk really starts even then. So this scorched earth that we see in the beginning of this episode really is just the continuation of how episode seven ends. It was a little jarring because it had been so not violent and so not scorched earth for the whole season. But the show told us, I mean, Bernard told us when he, when he told Akichita and we got to listen in, the world is going to burn. You know, there's only one path. I die. There's only one way to save some sliver of humanity. And while he's telling Akichita outside the tower control window, the view of the city is it's on fire. The show told us episodes ago that this was how it was going to go, but then we forgot about it because we didn't get to see any of that. We just saw this human can fly controlled, very orderly earth. Do you know like when authors say like I have I have an ending in mind, I mean I have to work backwards to get there. There's something about this season that has that vibe so strongly. Again, maybe the same as season one, where like you knew you were ending with that Ford insanity, you know, at the at the season finale. It's like we had to kind of build the season backwards. This is how I absorb it as the audience member. But this was the most sort of like fleshed out and like certain writing I feel like we got. Does that make sense? That like I know where everyone needs to be in episode eight. 
Right. Now let's just work backwards to get them there. And so some of the other episodes had some sort of like more fill in the dialogue here, writer's room, but just whatever they say, it's not as important, but just we have to have uh, like a murder mystery party. Five things have to happen throughout the night in order for this guy to have been the murderer. You know, does that make sense? And it's like we got that part and we were kind of playing this game as opposed to like building us to that. It was just like there were key moments throughout the season. And if you just picked up those, you'd be fine here. Would you say it's Dolores's brain ball in the sublime? Is that the and nothing else? (laughs) They didn't need anything else. Anybody else. They just need to get Dolores's brain ball from Holoris to To the sublime. Well, that's something that I think as we talk through this episode, I really want to get everyone's take on the question that I left us with in the last episode, which is why did she have to go through this journey? What was the point of taking the audience through her exercise of having this like, you know, okay, now you be the storyteller and now you decide what happens to everybody. Okay, now, now this is where you end up. Why did she have to have that entire experience? What is that going to inform about the last season here? Why? You know, and mm-hmm. so and so I want to as we go through this, I, I want to try to figure out like, so where did she end up? And like, how did this I mean, I think I know it's it builds to be her motivation for the next season, like what she wants to figure out and like why she knows what game has to be played out back at Westworld again. But I want I want to hear as we go through the events. Just before we leave the Jonathan Nolan of it all. I think for me, the part that felt most like him was the Christina stuff with like her and Teddy as the simulation is like literally shut off around them. And then it kind of sparks to life when she has like the little park setting with Maya, very abstract sci-fi. I think this was by far the most sci-fi episode of the season, really dealing with what is consciousness, but what is it to be alive? I mean, Teddy sets it off in the beginning of the episode pretty well. You know, he says to her, you're real because your thoughts are real. And that really governs the entire theme of this episode. And for me, that's like the Coco philosophy. She says (laughs) it pretty clearly at the end of the episode. But this idea of as long as someone remembers you, you're never really gone. You're real because your thoughts are real is the same as you still exist because someone remembers you. And that's the whole idea behind Coco. But she says it very clearly. That's how she could bring Teddy back and make a copy of him that we've been seeing the last few episodes. It's how she'll be able to reconstruct humans in the sublime, in this virtual world for their final one last game, one last dangerous test. This idea of memory, you know, that that creature is me. As long as one creature can remember you and that creature is me. All of that is very sci-fi. That's like very Star Trek-y sci-fi. I felt Jonah's fingerprints in that whole aspect of it because I think that was very different than the more literal blunt takes and explanations that the season gave us mostly. It's a very season one too, where they introduced like, Hey, we have this brand new thing called a reverie and you know, we're going to talk and it's about memories. It's about allowing the host to have some amount of memory to build on and to be able to kind of build their characters that way. It's like coming back around, you know, like it kind of makes you understand a little bit. I think about what to expect for the next season, still playing with that same idea from season one. Let's stay with Dolores and her realization, uh, because that takes up a large part of the first part of the episode for her, is this realization that she's the one who left the maze for herself. She created the character of Maya so that she would have a friend and not be lonely in the morning or, you know, throughout her day. 
that she created all of the people that she has interacted with the, the Emmett, the Maya, Peter Myers. I mean, Teddy. she created the, the douche guy. The, the date douchebag yeah. guy, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but, all, but all of them towards helping her either for two purposes. Everyone was had two, two purposes. Either one, to not make her feel alone. That was like the Maya purpose. Or to help her wake up. And that was the, that was the Teddy purpose. I think that's actually what the douchebag date guy was, though. Ultimately, he was nudging her towards her awakening. Obviously, leaving herself the maze was definitely a, a key part of that idea. I like the idea that her subconscious, and we talked a little bit about this last week with Teddy, which was unconfirmed in episode seven, but we started thinking Teddy was a manifestation of her mind. We get that confirmation in this episode. She really did make him whole cloth in this existence as someone to help nudge her around because she couldn't wake herself up. She needed to make external stimuli to wake herself up. I like that. And I like that we got that confirmation. I think the show did a good job of leaving those hints, but it was also satisfying to me to get confirmation of that. Curious how you guys felt about the payout on Maya, on Teddy, and on that whole, who has she been interacting with this whole season? I enjoyed it because my own pet theory that she had been set on a path by Heloris to either advance, discover, you know, something, something where she would need to undergo the same kind of awakening she had had in the first season. I wasn't far off well, <laughs> with, with, with this, with this explanation. So I've already satisfied with myself. Are you, are you like, are you ready to put like a fine point on what it is that she was supposed to learn? Because you were right. I think that your comments at the beginning about like, I think we're supposed to be coming around to some sort of awakening, some sort of realization, some sort of whatever, how is this version of who she is different than the version that she was when she woke up, realized she wasn't a host, realized, you know, go through her Wyatt stage, go through all the different things where, where she was. How is this version of her different? That's a great question, because when she woke up in season one, she instantly started killing all the people around her. And in this case, if I understand, she is going to conduct a test wherein she sets the guidelines to determine whether or not any life of any kind derivative of humans should survive at all. It's the Q in Next Generation putting humanity on trial. There you it's, go. It's, that, that's exactly what this was. This was the first and last episode of The Next Generation, this putting humanity on trial to see if they're worthy of being continued to allow to live or should they just be made extinct by a larger power kind of thing. And I, I think that's what the final test is going to be for Dolores too. So this version of Dolores though is I, I guess more on an even ground or even playing field with humanity, like how when they were trying to flee Olympiad and she couldn't stand to watch all the carnage, the awakening that she's undergone is not the same exact thing that she had in the first season when she realized that she'd been a plaything and had been the subject of abuse after, you know, years and years of existence. This is more Earth Mother Gaia or something where she's, mm, I'm, I'm not putting great words to it, but do you understand what I'm going for? I, think, I mean, I think I understand. I, I feel like I thought I knew where you were going to go when you said the first thing she did when she woke up, she started killing people because in this one, 
where we left off in the in episode seven, she was trying to stop people from attacking one another. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's like the bookend, right, of it all is like this time she woke up and she wanted there to be peace, not chaos. You know, she wanted people to get along. She didn't want people to be killing each other, which was a different feel from that first waking up. Like, like she, she wanted to go through like the revenge phase of it all, you know, and sort of punish all of them that throughout. And then now she got to this point and it's like, she's well, everything more, she went through, she had, she had Caleb that taught her that not all people are worth eradicating. And that he was like, he, like when he came into the tunnel, remember how he was, she had asked him like, what was it you were going to do to me? Like when you right. came into that tunnel, like she was real sus about like that every man and ev- every human for that matter, didn't have to be a man only had, you know, these like kind of nasty brother went to the mat for her. Exactly. And you're right. And so that's the thing. I'm like stuck by her. Right. Yeah. And through throughout a lot. So she did learn a lot of lessons about humanity. And even with Peter and her having some more like responsibility to humanity, then like kind of asking herself, like, you know, what role did I play in, in Peter killing himself and that kind of stuff? Like that was not something that say the Wyatt version of her cared about you know mm-hmm. going back through her progression let's play the graveyard audio clip here i think it gets to this point this world is a graveyard of stories hosts and humans were given the gift of intelligent life and we used it to usher in our own annihilation A few may escape death for a few months, maybe even years, but ultimately, their kind will go extinct. They will only live as long as the last creature who remembers them. And that creature is me. So I think at the end of the episode, her realization is that the hosts given free reign are as bad as the humans or as good. And so in the end, they're just two sides of the same coin. And so I think this idea of giving them one final test makes sense to her because it's not the black and white hosts are good, humans are bad that she has in the escape from Westworld Park in season two and then in season three. She's come around to realize that her own kind is in many ways as bad as the humans that which was what she had thought that they were the only offenders, right? That hosts were all good and humans were all bad. I think by the end of this episode, watching that carnage, all of those dead bodies, you know, when she comes out of the apartment and she's OG Dolores in like the blue dress and the show makes a point of showing you she has to carefully step through as she does one of the famous walkabouts in New York, and it's just bodies and bodies everywhere, and you can't tell who's a host or who's a human. They're all just dead. So I think that's where she's come to, is that we're all the same because we have all the same limitations. And maybe can I add, we also all have, like, the same potential in terms of, again, going back to that, like, you can be a builder, you can be a creator, or you can be a destroyer. And, you know, there's just as many hosts that were wanting to build or do or or create something for themselves, some sort of life, like Maeve, versus, you know, there's just as many, um, you know, humans who are trying to build their own little lives and... um, 
I could see that like on both sides, like they both had potential to do something um, with whatever the quote unquote like life that they were given. I, I want to talk more nuts and bolts for one second. So Polaris smashes the floor and pulls her brain pearl out, which shuts down the simulation that she is in with her creation of Teddy. Remember, they're they are choosing then to make out on her balcony, on her fire escape as the world shuts off around them. This means that everything that dealt with Christina's storyline, even though it took place in, in the same looking New York City as what Holoris and the host in black were conducting themselves in with hunts for outliers, that was in the very real world. Everything that Christina experienced in the same New York City was this truly walled garden, right? It didn't actually affect the humans. So my question last week, remember I asked, what is burning down Olympiad and terminating and deleting all of those narratives? What effect would that have on the humans? I think this episode is telling us it has no effect on the real humans. <laughs> yeah. Everything Christina touched was purely a fabrication. It was just an entirely closed room circuit that just looked like the outside real world, but didn't actually touch it or infect it in any way. It was like a construct for her to understand her place in the world. It was, it felt like right. a lesson. It felt like some sort of lesson that she was supposed to like work through the modules, you know, and come to the end and like understand something different about the way that, that the world does work or could work. Um, and right. the, and the role she has in it. I, I have to ask you guys though, well, as good as I am with like Teddy being a construct of hers and that being a little slice of her pie and, and all that, it's, I'm good with that. Maya is one that bugs me because she had that weird little spiel about the flies getting my parents and all that stuff that I'm like, wait, what? Because good, good callback. What role did Christina have in fly infecting anything? If Maya is a construct of Christina's existence, kind of only works if you're like, well, Haloris is like kind of... Christina, kind of, they're all Dolores. But I thought we kind of all decided, like, no, there was a clear fork in the road. And while they started the same, they had different life experiences, sort of nature-nurture. Christina went, slash the Dolores version of that went one way. Haloris went another way, had a different experience, went another way. How does Maya know shit about flies? That's a good point. So how much shared information? But she did know. But she did know on some level. Though. I guess, well, because Teddy said a ghost from your past life. So right. Yeah. And, Teddy, and, Teddy is, and Teddy is Christina. Right. And also, remember, Charlotte was inserting herself into Christina's world. Remember my old my old friend from college? Yeah. Right. Roommate for college. So there was some bleed. And they were also recreating the host in Black's chaos in the real world was also being recreated in Christina's simulation. So there was some linkage and joining. So I think on some level she does know. Well, we have to, we have to think that because if, if they clearly stated Maya is a creation of Christina's and, and Maya had this though. information, right. then Christina has this information. Right. Right. So then we ha we know that now, which is a whole different thing. And the tower exists in Christina's simulation, the same it exists in the real world. So she has to know on some level. Maybe it's just not a conscious level. It's it's all part of using using external things 
to help you realize the things you already know that are just locked deep away inside your brain. I think the Maya and the fly story and Maya's existence in general. Yes, I think she says it was for loneliness, but I think it was at a deeper level. It was another aspect of trying to understand the world for what it really was. And Maya and being a human who is fly controlled is an is a part of coming to understand what that world really is. I think the I think the thing that makes this part a little bit extra confusing is that Teddy was a part of her from the past. It, she used her memory to create Teddy and to create this part of her consciousness, right? That was going to talk to her about different difficult things, you know? My issue is that things like Emmett or Maya or whatever, like, it, it, it should have almost been Clementine that played that role or something. You know, like, they didn't use characters like the same as Teddy from her past and then give them a different role in her life to help her on this journey. Like, that would have made sense to me. Like we used for Bernard, you know, like Akichita, right? Like, they didn't just pull a totally strange person who we never knew, a completely new actor, to tell Bernard everything. We used a character we already knew. So it's weird to me to mix, you know, this central important character in her life like Teddy and then totally brand new actors playing these other roles that are all supposed to be little facets of her consciousness. Here's where I'm coming around to it, though. And I think, Caroline, this plays into your original hypothesis that Dolores was torturing Dolores, Dolores to some extent or, or keeping in some kind of purgatory. The idea of keeping her brain pearl trapped in the floor that is then powering the simulation really spoke to me of keeping her in a box. Now, there may be some aspect of keeping her there because she wants her to learn a lesson that Dolores as this side permutation of Dolores felt that she needed to understand as part of Holoris's desire for revenge in very blunt and extreme ways. But I think within that punishment, within that trapping the genie in a bottle kind of way that Holoris has literally placed her in the ground for existence, I think Dolores, being the strong host that she is, began to evolve within her own world. So... I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of Holoris trapping her in this simulation and setting up some bare bones aspects of it, uh, like Emmett. Again, this all goes back into what Teddy was explaining to her, that this world wasn't really created by you as much as it was created by you and copies and permutations of you. Okay. It gets, it gets very messy because if you're saying, every time you say Holoris, you're really also talking about Dolores. Because they are, at their root, the same person, just kind of in a split personality kind of way. There is a breaking of the copies, but if you look at it from the right angle, they are the same person. So the creation of Emmett may not be a Christina slash Dolores creation. It may be a Holoris Dolores, uh, Charlotte Hale Dolores, a Holoris creation. And in that way, it's also still a creation of Dolores. I guess. Does that but make I, sense? I do. I do. I get it. I really do get it. And I do think that the Holoris Christina thing is a really good examination of nature versus nurture. If you took the same initial being and you had one go through this horrific stuff and another one kind of have a have a different experience, you know, how would they be different? Totally feel that. 
I still, I'm still standing by the actors thing. Then it should have been actors, and maybe, maybe I missed it. Maybe I missed it. Maybe Emmett was an actor on the board that Charlotte Hale knew or something. You know what I mean? Like, if this is all a game of using your memory to kind of piece together pieces, and it's also pieces of your consciousness, I don't know how you get brand new people. You should always be getting some amalgamation of people from the past seasons. Right, but they have access to four million users that had gone through the parks. Maybe it's it's one of those, you just never saw them, but Emmett, or the character that Emmett is based off of, the face of Emmett, the show could easily say, yeah, he's based off of a guy who visited Westworld in like 1995 or, you know, or, or rather uh, like 2029 yeah, or whatever. I, I mean, it's, you know? it's one of, I mean, I totally don't want to get stuck on this because we've been talking about it for a long time, but it, it's just one of those things for me that like, you have to get to like one sentence. But does that give away like, too much of the farm too soon? Right. If if the person playing her boss in this world in in episode one or two is Rebus, right? We see Stephen Ogg returns in the beginning of this episode as you know as Rebus rocking a fantastic shirt before he takes an axe to the head. But let's say instead of playing this rogue host who's now being hunted by humans instead of hunting them, let's say that he is cast as the Emmett role of her boss. Wouldn't we all have been like, oh, there's something really fucked up here, like right away, like there's something going on here. So it almost has to be someone new to allow some mystery as to what is happening here. My thing, though, is the mix of it is like, okay, but then why go get Clementine? Why not just bring in any old person to play that role? Like, like, I don't know. For me, it's so mixed of like these tried and true core group of people. And it could have even been some periphery people. And then these completely, we just brought them in this week because we only spent eight weeks with them. And and it's like, ooh, that feels funky to me. And I'm still going to go back to, I don't really get why Maya fully gets the fly thing. Like, I, I'm not sold on a full understanding because I don't know that Haloris current walking around in Tessa Thompson's body shares information with Christina brain-wise. Like, I thought once they kind of made that split, they were split. They were from initially the same thing. But once they were two copies and had experienced two different things, like, Haloris's brain is not accessible to Christina. If I understood it, her brain ball being underneath the map, to me, represented that she was kind of the CPU of... Of the, of the operation. Does that include Haloris? Like the no. active Haloris? No, no. Just kind of like the administration of the city. Okay. Oh, so you th- so do you think then Christina, when she is writing stories inside her simulation, is actually corresponding to the loops out yeah. in the actual world? That's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I got out of that. I didn't get that. I, didn't, I thought that the entire season, well, I thought that since we've had this idea until this episode because when she stomps on the floor it deletes the simulated world around like literally takes it to black it's just kind of in a void where christina is but it doesn't shut all the humans off though like the city doesn't fall in fact the tower is still operating which i didn't know that would be possible because we i thought we saw the tower explode last week but it's still sending out tones it's still controlling the rioters out in the street yeah that explosion just apparently made it unpleasant but not unusable (laughs) well 
there's two incidences of this uh, this episode where I feel like they backtracked off of things that they showed us. In That's why I seven. think this was filmed at a completely different time at the beginning. That but was I, one I, of I, the feels. Yeah, no, I, I see. I, 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 in the end, I'm taking a completely different tact. I think Dolores or Christina did not have any actual impact in the real world where the host in black was operating. Like when hosts were killing themselves, when they go and she does her hunts, when Hope kills the the homeless guy outlier and then kills herself. I don't think any of that was being written by Christina. Remember when Emma tells her it's a walled garden? I didn't appreciate that until this episode. I think it truly was an entirely matched simulation, but really had no effect on the outside world. Christina didn't have any effect beyond what was within that simulation. I think that's why there's two hollow maps. I think the tower control room hollow map is different than the red hollow map we see in the Olympiad offices. Well, and I'll go with you because I definitely felt like we talked about things along the way, the use of mirrors. And, and I know that I picked up lots of times when there's looking in mirrors and all that stuff. And I know that they, you know, said they, they're collecting data that way in the other park and all that business. So there's like, there's all that. So an idea of a mirror world or a reflection or any of that kind of stuff feels right on thematically you know like there's a second world but it's not exactly the same and where dolores comes to visit her for lunch right i think that is Polaris jacking into the christina closed walled garden simulation i don't think christina and Holoris were having lunch out in real midtown or what the real world city park i think she jacks herself in like you would jack yourself into the matrix to visit her in her simulated world. Because I don't know if I said this on the podcast. I had this thought when she visits this old college roommate for lunch. I had a thought to myself, wait, they both work at Olympiad. How has Christina never run into Charlotte at the offices if they're occupying the same? They literally work in the same building, but they've never seen each other. Christina thinks that she only comes to town for these lunches periodically. I thought about that. Well, that makes sense because they literally are existing in two different worlds. Holoris's real body is out there in the real world, and it's only a simulation where Christina is. I disagree. But in my defense. Can I ask, is that actually right? Because, I mean, doesn't Holoris work in that white building beyond the... The woven. Well, she works at. Well, that's the tower. Yeah, but isn't that where she kind of hangs out over there? And then well, Olympiad well, is like the business Olympiad. building. Well, Olympiad when she's when she's doing the interrogations and stuff, that's all in Olympiad, where the man in black is, where she goes to that's visit true. the real man in black, right? Where she does the interrogation, where all the Council of Caleb's, right. where she visits him in the cylinder box and stuff, and then sets them all on fire. That's all at Olympiad's offices. That's what I'm saying. Like, if Christina and her were occupying the same space, they would have run into each other. It, to the point where, even if they worked together, I mean, based on that lunch with an old friend, that was a college roommate coming into town for a lunch, let's get together kind of thing. But because Holoris is not usually in that world that Christina is occupying, it's this simulated world that she can remove herself from. Okay, and what's your... Oh, just that that if she was more hooked in as a brain ball to the the guidance of the actual city, then that would give her access to knowledge of the flies. 
Whereas if she was true. just a, in a gilded cage or whatever the right terminology is, then she'd continue to have been separate from from that knowledge. But, but maybe actually, though, maybe it's a combination, right? Because the idea with the with the walled garden is that the content provider can allow certain information in and certain information out, but it's up to them. Maybe Haloris allows Christina's stories to regulate the whole operation of the human loops in the real world, but also restricts her access to certain information, though, too. Yeah. So that that Haloris can't be found walking around inside Christina's simulation, even though she's walking out around in the real world, because as the content creator, as the one who controls the gate, doesn't allow her to see that, but does allow her to power all of the stories. There's a world there where she can restrict what comes in and comes out. That makes a lot of sense. I think we're I think we're we're close. I think we're we're near the rationale there. That- well, I think this is one of those shows that like you know, not unlike in our last episode where it's like every single time I hit publish, I have like a thousand other things I see. I'm sure by the time we either go back and watch this from like beginning to end, whether we get another season and that equals we also get to include that in our story. I think it's it is a whole game of looking back and rewatching the whole thing and figuring it out. Like it's very impossible. Right now we're holding one jigsaw puzzle piece and we're looking at it really close and being like, I know what the huge puzzle is. And it's like, right. do we? No. And we couldn't or really freaking like, know what it is. It's like it's, a cat's arm. Right. That's it's like all a we jigsaw have. puzzle of like a sky and you have like a little wisp of a cloud. Like we don't know. Like, maybe yeah. it's a sky or maybe it's a fucking, you know, tornado in the rest of the picture. Like we don't know yet. I think it's a piece of this larger one that. I do feel like they're building very well, but I am scared, you guys, because this really did go back to your initial comments, Mike, feel a lot like hedging their bet about whether or not we get the next season. I'm nervous. This felt very closing up. As of the time we're recording this, Westworld hasn't officially been picked up by season five, but Lisa Joy gave an interview in which she said, this was not our final story. We have one story left to tell. I hope we get a chance to tell it. So, so that's that's the official from Lisa Joy as the finale was airing. That's where things stand, and and it hasn't changed. So definitely a lot of bickering though amongst fans about people being like, "Why does that? Why do people say this is the last season? Like that's bullshit." But then other people being like. Well, why do you think it's not the last season? Like, it's it's the same as every other show in terms of, like, they're not, we don't have any confirmation. We hope it doesn't feel like the end. Don't you guys know, like, the how many stories have we seen, series, where it's like, oh, man, they are totally using this as a potential series ending oh, episode. I mean, like, we've Schitt's all Creek, seen right? that. I mean, Shit's Creek famously. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. And season I, one ending, 100 Season one and season two 100%. were both done as p- potential series finales. Let's talk about I was going to talk about this at the end of the episode, but we're there now and we're talking about it. So let's talk about it. This obviously works as a classic season finale of a Westworld, right? They wrap up the story and then they introduce a thesis on what the next season would be about. But this did feel a little bit different in a couple of real ways. And I think intangible ways in a real way, there's no after credit scene. This is the first season of Westworld where there was no after credit scene, which is significant. Right. Season ones, two and three all had after credit scenes. I think that is a big clue that they were ready to have this stand as a finale, as a series finale, if possible. 
but also I think just where they left the story, almost all of your main characters are dead. Truly, Dolores is the only one left living. In a way. In, in a way, right? In, 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 a, in a Right. I mean, we, we saw the crushing of several brain balls. We saw last week, human William is dead. They kind of erased the idea that brain pearls can be shot by guns and they become irretrievable. This was the other thing that bothered me in this episode, besides the tower exploding in episode seven and then still working in this episode. We see Haloris get shot in the temple with a handgun. That's supposed to be game over for her pearl. She's fixed immediately in this episode. So she's not shot in the temple. She's shot in the front of her head. But we were all looking at it, right? I mean, it was to the side of the, her, like, septum, It was a shot meant to right? show that her brain... Right. I mean, if it, it yeah. was the same shot as Maeve is the most right. important thing. Yeah. Because if it's the same shot as Maeve and Maeve, at least at this is moment, out, yeah. is out of the game, then what the hell that the uh, that the same shot. What the hail. Oh, what the hail. What Why the does she hail? get to come back? You know? Right. And I think that was that. I had the same thought, though. Retroactively, it was like, well, what the none of this makes a difference. And we could just bring Bernard and, and Maeve back. And I thought that really de-escalated the stakes. That she comes back, even if the shot was a slightly askew from where he placed the bullet for Bernard and Maeve. And you know what? Maybe it was a more head-on shot versus more of a temple shot. But they fix her so quickly. And then not only that, but then superpower her body, right? Because she gets herself planted into a Gen 1 split face model. I was like, this completely erased the stakes of Episode 7. It bothered me. It bothered me in a way that to show doesn't usually bother me because i think the show usually does a better job of it mm -hmm. i thought it really de-escalated the stakes this and the tower still operating because then it makes the end of episode seven where we see it popping and sizzling as the man who stole the world or man who sold the world is playing and he rides off in slow-mo it makes it just a cool visual but having absolutely no teeth retroactively made me dislike those aspects of episode seven because i felt like they were unwound so quickly in this episode and that's what gives me the the that push to feel like did they film this at another time? You know, you know did what? Did we forget where we left off? What could reinforce that? Unless we talk to a, a person in the production, would be you don't get to just drop in on Hoover Dam and say we're going to film in these seven different times. They right. they, they say they you get a week right. or whatever. So. Right. All the parts that needed to exist, regardless of who directed them, but the biggest parts happen to have been in the first and last episodes directed by the same guy. Mm -hmm. right. Chances are they were made at the same time, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Problem um, solved. <laughs> Mic drop, etc. So, so, so not So on top of the no extra credit scene, which is a tangible evidence that they're thinking this could be a series finale, everyone is dead to some extent uh except for dolores and i i know i spent a lot of time quoting other movies and tv shows on this podcast but at the end of terminator 2 after everyone is dead except for john and sarah connor it's the tracking shot of the headlight at night as she talks about looking forward for the first time i have hope you know i don't know what's gonna come but for the first time there's hope kind of thing that's kind of how they end up with dolores all sentient life on Earth has ended. I mean, we have the clip. Let's play the clip here, the sentient life clip. Sentient life on Earth has ended. But some part of it might still be preserved in another world. My world. There's time 
for one last game. A dangerous game with the highest of stakes. Survival or extinction. This game ends where it began. In a world like a maze. That tests who we are. That reveals what we are to become. Definitively, sentient life on Earth has ended. Mic drop. Hard stop. But maybe humans can pass this test, this final dangerous test of my own making in this virtual world as the city disappears and the train whistle cues up and the player piano cues up and we're back in Sweetwater. And it's just kind of her walking towards the camera as the episode ends. That feels like, yeah, the story continues, but this is all you get to see of it. It works as a series finale to me. I actually think it's a pretty successful series finale and in a lot of ways better than what we get oftentimes from shows that end before we're ready for them to end. I don't know how you guys feel, but I think this worked pretty well as a series finale if that was the case. I mean, it does end it. <laughs> yes. However, you know, when we were watching this um, show, especially in the second season, um, I remember asking ourselves, Caroline, mm -hmm. um, who are we rooting for here? As a human, I feel like we should be rooting for humans, mm -hmm. but the protagonists are all wronged hosts who have a good reason for what they're doing. And then here at the end, she says, no matter how many have survived, it's not enough to perpetuate humanity anymore. And then so just going off of what I remember of humans, I'm going to make a test and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I don't know that I can fully get behind the concept that the Cylons eradicated us. We had it coming and that's the end. I think from the concept of can this be a finale, I think that there's like two types of finales. There's finales that like tie everything up in a bow in a way that you everyone is kind of like landed where you expect them to land. Right. Like, say, the people get married or the family settles down somewhere or whatever happens. Right. Happy endings you mean but like settled like you landed somewhere okay mm -hmm. versus the you know what that this person is going to continue on their adventures and they give you a little idea of what that next adventure might look like but it's like where like the i don't know like the cowboy you know hat kind of move where you're like you're like see you next time partner like it's like it's the end but i go on you just need to go to sleep tonight and in your dreams you think about what Tess Dolores could do on humanity, but we don't necessarily need to tell you that story. We could if we get another season, but if we don't, we gave you this little, like, it's like a writing prompt, right? To, like, go to sleep with, and you can think about what Dolores is going to do next. Come back, Shane. It's like the end of Shane, right? <laughs> it, it, like, for me, it, it works for me. It's If this is where it ends... I'm cool with it from the standpoint of they've tried a lot of different things and it's clear to me that it started off with Ford, a human, doing experiments on hosts and humans alike in a park. If it ends with his invention now playing God, doing experiments on hosts and humans or human-ish things in the park – that's actually a pretty cool bookend. But there's no way that, given how the world is left, mm -hmm. that she has any expectation that, regardless of whether or not she chooses to let sublime life continue, humanity 
is over. And that's the part that I have a problem with as a, as a watcher because I wanted right. to think that somewhere, some way we would redeem ourselves. But that's like, yeah, and not I'm not even possible. I'm not exactly so, well, even looking yeah. at it as like the human host ratio of like, well, how many were humans in the park and how many are hosts in the park? Because at the beginning, it's mostly humans with some hosts, right? And then they get to the point where now it's like hosts with maybe just a couple humans, if that, right? Well, there are no maybe, humans, though. But I know yeah, she okay. says all sentient life is over. Yes. But that that implies that, that Frankie's dead, too. That's a huge thing that I think a lot of people are going to sleep on in the larger context of because she's doing a lot of monologuing at the end of this episode. But when she says sentient life on Earth has ended as they're showing Frankie and Odina in Red Hook pulling away from Caleb on the dock, it made me think I was like, okay, she's in the sublime now. Remember, in one year on Earth is is a thousand years in the sublime. Dolores is monologuing this some long period of time after Frankie left Caleb on that dock. Okay, right? so because they could have just naturally passed on and just didn't make other kids. We have to go back to Rehoboam. I know no one wants to revisit Rehoboam from season three, but we never talked about this, but Rehoboam predicted a mass population collapse in 23 years, right? There was a mass extinction event that Rehoboam said would happen. I think it was like 15 to 18 years, and then a mass population collapse at 23 years, which the show then in this season played out with the 23-year time jump. I, and I think there was a further prediction that I am I am blanking on, but there is a still out there that you can find on the internet, if, if you look it up, listeners, where I think Rehoboam even then predicts the complete extinction of humanity. I don't remember how long it is, but I think when Dolores is monologuing at the end of the episode as the world turns back to Westworld and the train whistle is up in the sublime. Remember, that's all in the sublime. All of that is virtual. Every host and human is a virtual host and human in that final shot that we see in Sweetwater. It's some long period of time after Frankie and Odina and any other outliers have come and gone. Because sentient life on Earth has ended is a definitive statement that's different than most life or most humans has died. That is definitive. Earth is a there's no one tending the real physical world anymore. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that is a very specific intended statement that Dolores is making there. It's interesting because it seems to presume that she is operating in the end of the episode at a very different time period. One final timeline difference than anything else we had seen previously. I think that's significant, especially in the context of if season five is a go. But also, she's in a computer program. How would she know that all sentient life on Earth is That's what I kept thinking. I was thinking, like, how does she know where where that Frankie... Was it like, she's saying this, but we're watching them go away on the boat? Like, so it's like, well, that's what she thinks. But hey, audience, check out the boat leaving with the humans. Like, is it like a, mm, I don't know, in are fact, they all, all gone? Sentient life, sentient life has not all Maybe. Been. Is it one of those things where, you know, plenty of films have done that, where it's like... You know, you have like the the villain being like, and I got them all. And then but the camera shoots over to the corner and the guy like kind of like squiggles away. And you're like, oh, there is there is still hope. Let's talk about the season five thesis. I know we're we're jumping all over the place here, but let's talk about what season five sounds like it would be about. I have a couple of bullet points here. She explains that it's going to be one final test for humanity, a game of my own making a dangerous game. Then she says the game ends where it began in a world like a maze that reveals who you are and who you can become. 
and that's when we see the world transform. Her final line is, one last loop around the bend. Maybe this time we'll set ourselves free. And that's how the episode ends on that line. Who's the wheel there? Is the wheel hosts and humans or just hosts? I gotta be hosts, yeah, right? The only, yeah, they were the only ones that I felt like... I mean, what if the starting from the beginning. Last dangerous game. Again, it's like there can't be actual humans that can participate in the test. Well, that her memory and, of her memory of the humans that she's going to create and test. And and right? season four just demonstrated that hosts left to their own devices choose to act pretty much like humans did. Right. Well, I mean, uh, Man in Black said it last week, right? Our host in Black said it last week. If you can't tell the difference, does it? If you can't tell, does it make a difference? Mm-hmm. which is a theme of Westworld, the all four seasons. That's been a refrain that they've said. If you if you can't tell, then does it matter? I'm you pretty know, sure that line is from the movie, either Westworld or Future World. I, I, I made Caroline watch a few minutes of Future World the other day. The sequel to Westworld, it is I not as good. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pale shadow. But there is... Just say the line clearly so we all know. Well, that. I won't remember it. But it is one of those things about the intake part where the, where the women hosts are taking in the, the men and, and men are like ribbing each other about, you know, the prospect of having sex with, the, <laughs> with any of the female hosts around. And it's that same thing. If you can't tell the difference or if you can't tell if it's real, then what's the difference? Or I think that goes all the way back to the original material. I think it works in many different ways, and I think it has many different meanings, but it's always made sense in the context in which the show is using it. When a human is having a question of, man, do I want to have sex with this this robot or kill this robot? And and someone's making a point of, it's just a robot. It doesn't matter. And they're like, well, if you can't tell the difference of which one is a robot and which one is a human, does it make a difference? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you treat them all the same? Or treat you know treat them all good or treat them all bad kind of thing. That's interesting. That that whole concept, that the way you just put it, just like that. If you're willing to have sex with it and kill it, what is that? And and, and but the, if you can't tell the difference to have sex with it, then does it matter? Well, then then you're also a killer, right? If you're also that's what that's has been our discussion since the beginning about like you know right. does this mean that however you would treat a machine is how you would treat just because they're in a form of a human equals how you would treat humans. And I I have debated, I don't think it does because I treat machinery different than I treat humans, even when it has a human voice like the Alexa, or even if it was, I don't know, some machinery I'm using, whatever it is, right? Like I'm not going to treat it the same as I'm going to treat what I believe is a human being. If your Alexa was in the body of uh, James Marsden or an ever Rachel Wood... Would you treat it different, even if you knew it was Alexa? Different than my, than say like my own child standing next to it. Yeah, I would treat, I would treat a human being standing next to it different than a machine. Because what if you didn't know though? What if Alexa in a human body just came off maybe as a little weird? Well, I can't uh, do that example. I think I, I think I would always default to it's a human. But then. that's the question though, because that's that's the it's question. Not being, it the is. Question, it is the question because only, when te- when okay. when Logan and William first show up to the park, William can't necessarily tell which ones are the humans and which ones are the robots. So he's faced with that very example of I don't. Can I fuck it? Can I kill it? Is it real? Is it is it Memorex? I don't know. We're making assumptions you can tell the difference. I don't know. If I ran into Bernard on the street, 
You know, if I was I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to kill him because I don't kill anything that I think could be a human. Like, it's that simple. Like, I don't kill it if I'm not sure, you know? Let's bring this to my question I was just asking, though. When she says one final test, we've been assuming it's one final test for humanity. But what if it's one final test for all of them? When it says, when it says, we'll maybe we'll set ourselves free. I know the impulse is the talk about just the hosts, but I think we are at the point at the end of this episode where humans and hosts really are no longer being treated differently, especially since they all exist in this virtual world. So maybe we'll set ourselves free, I think actually refers to whoever is left, whether (laughs) it is a human or a host, if they can do better, if they can pass this one final test this presumably this morality test that she's going to set of her own making then whether a human or a host doesn't really matter as much as can you live like a moral creature whether it's the the children of man or or man i guess the the earth or whatever you want to consider it um yeah right it doesn't it doesn't care the universe doesn't care. So it's just like, is there anything, any speck of humanity, whether or not it's flesh and blood or, you know, Memorex? Maybe not, maybe not humanity. Maybe there's a different word. Is there any version of well, it is, life though. or any yes. version of... Or sentient life. Right. Right. So so not human, but something else, right? Well, any but it's version the, it's, of some spark of... But it's the cocoism, right? They would always remember us... In that same way that the reference to Olympus with Olympiad and all that, the, the, mm-hmm. we were, the, we, we shaped them in our, in our image because we were their gods. They kept coming up this, this season and throughout the show. Yeah. I guess I'm coming around to this idea like, yeah, we don't get to persist, but as, as human people, mm-hmm. but our children do. They're just not the same, like that same thought that you have as right? parents. It's not like we bore them kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll go with that. I mean, if you go with the concept of like, you know, we're all like stardust, right? Exactly. Because like there's the energy and whatever. I mean, maybe energy is the better word than life or something like that. You know, like it, it all still exists, right? Matter is never like gone. Like it just changes form. So yeah, I'm with that. That's why I'm not so hung up on saying human or host when we're talking about this park experiment. Like, I think what I cared about is that it was Ford, definitely a human, running the experiment. And at the end, if it's a host, definitely a host, without a doubt, running the experiment, that itself is a cool bookend. No matter who the the rats are in the maze, I don't really, it doesn't exactly matter so much as that that much changed. You know, it's something different. Some she other said maze. Version. Oh, my God. Of course, yeah. you guys saw when they stomped the city that that definitely looked like the maze, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they took the brain ball out. That's not the first time, too, because when she runs an analytic, remember when she chews out the host in black to get the human infection under control? When he walks out, she runs a diagnostic on that map, and the diagnostic looks like a version of the maze. Like, it filters up, so you only see a part of the scan as it moves uh, bottom to top. But it looks like the maze as it as the diagnostic runs. And so did the, the the camera hadn't done it at least not throughout the season. But it was either this episode or last episode where it had approached the tower in a way that you could see the layout Top of down. Yeah, of of those like I called them like servers or something. But those things that are in the water, mm-hmm. they're arrayed in concentric circles 
similar not to the, unlike. not unlike the maze, <laughs> kind of in pieces. Get yeah, to the center. Exactly. Tootsie Pop. Uh, just before we leave this human host thing, and 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 I think just the to put a button on Teddy is. Dolores is an aspect of Dolores trying to talk to her and make her realize something. There's this humans audio clip that I want to play here. Let the humans go. Don't bring the flaws of their kind into our world. Maybe you're right. I've watched the people in their world for years. I've seen the best of them and the worst of them. And I remember it all. They're not like us. The codes are written in their cells. They'll never change. We could still see. How? One final test. A game of my own making. Before it's revealed, or just as it's being revealed, that it's not really Teddy. It's a version. It's her memory of Teddy that she's created here. He says, "Let the humans go. Don't bring their flaws into our world." That's when they re- are rebooted into the Sublime, and Dolores just knows she's like, "I think we're in the Sublime with the other hosts." How she knows that? Who knows? But she knows it. She feels it. That's what Teddy Dolores says to her. That's interesting because she's still wrestling with this even at this point now. So she's got her whole little arc in here because of her experience with humans from years of being abused in the park through her experience as a rat in this maze and seeing what she's done to Peter Myers and the other humans that she's interacted with as their God in this world, watching them kill each other, watching the host kill each other. It's interesting that she still has this same opinion that really governs Haloris. This is Holoris' whole thing of we could be better than humans if we just transcend and we leave our human appetites and bodies and earthly kinds of things behind and put ourselves into these new sleek drone things. We can be better than the humans. It's the same thing as saying, let the humans go. Don't bring their flaws into our world, our world being the sublime. I love this recurring theme, no matter what permutation of Dolores it is, whether it's Dolores, Christina Dolores, OG Dolores, Teddy Dolores, Holoris Dolores, all of them have the same hang up of humans will poison the well, leave them behind. But at the end of the day, she goes against all of this and she's just she's going to remember the humans and put them through this final test. I think it's really interesting that there's such this deep seated humans are bad for us. Humans are a poison. They are a toxin. They are an infection to us. And still it looks like she's going to choose to give them one final try. That's fascinating. But isn't that what this season was about? Was her getting the heart for the humans, like Dolores herself, because she spent all those seasons, like that's what we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion. Mm-hmm. She spent all that beginning part slashing and burning only to get to the part where she's like, hang on, maybe there's some good ones in the bunch. Maybe we should have a weeding out process, <laughs> you right, know, right, right. figuring it than, out. There's less than five minutes between where Teddy Dolores says this let the humans go and she does that final monologue it's like one of the situations where like 
I know this is bad for me. I know this is the wrong choice. Everyone is telling me, all of my split personalities are telling me this is the wrong choice. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Fuck the human. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give the humans one more chance. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those things you can't, because you can't help your code. At the end of the day, we are slaves to our base code. And the fact that she decides to give them one more, she chooses to, the way Bernard predicts in her in his video, if she chooses to, one more test of her own making, she does. She does choose to. She chooses to give them, in fulfillment of Bernard's greatest hope, she decides to give them one more chance. We haven't even talked about the fact that, in, in the end, Bernard is successful. This one path that led to her having to make of Holoris choosing to let Dolores make a choice to give them one final game of her own making, she does it. Bernard successful in death. I thought I love that. I love that we got to see that because Bernard's my favorite character. So I was very happy that over eight episodes we finally got to see his path come to the end. He planted a tree he never got to see grow. He planted a tree he never got to see grow. Let's talk a little bit about uh Holoris. When she grunts and smashes his video on the ground, did you think that she is going to still go do the right thing? At what point do you think that she decides to actually, I mean, she goes all the way out to the Hoover Dam with the brain pearl. So she's definitely making preparations to follow through on Bernard's advice from that video. But I'm not sold that she was going to do it until the very last moment where she decides to go forward and give Dolores that choice. What would you guys think of that whole entire Holoist arc and her fight with the host in black and their conversation about extinction as the goal versus giving a sliver of, of the chance to survive. What, what was your take on that whole aspect of the episode? Haloris wasn't hell-bent on complete destruction of, of everything. She had goals that were, you know, destructive, and she became a dictator kind of figure. A tyrant. Tyrant, yeah, there you go. But she wanted better things for her people. You know, it's just the methods and, and all that that didn't make her super popular. <laughs> but so the idea that she would recognize that she had fucking lost and there was really just, uh, I guess, a quick assessment of how badly she lost to the point where if she doesn't do this, take this one little bit of advice, then it's like lights out for everyone everywhere. It does work for me that she would play ball. She wasn't the big bad this season in the way that most viewers probably thought she was, you know, right. she, she was just trying, trying to get her people to, to transcend right. that didn't work. So she had to switch plans. She had to go to plan Z. Well, and good villains are never like, you know, all bad, right. You, they always have to have like a little redeeming something, something in there where like they could make a better choice. Right. It just turns That's out she created fun villain. She created a pretty bad Darth Vader uh, on this and right. yeah he let let off his leash went nuts yeah well i thought it was interesting in their confrontation at the hoover dam she reminds him that she made him from her code it's again it, it was a nice callback to this existential crisis that the host in black had the back half of the season right this i am made in her code but i am made in william's image who am i and last week with him deciding at the end of episode seven, I am William. I mean, they had the conversation 
they had that conversation in this episode where he mm-hmm. says, I am William. You know, he didn't die. He evolved. I am William. And she's like, no, you're not. And he's, and that's when he says, if you can't tell the difference, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, like he's decided of his split personalities. He's the William personality. He's not child of Holoris. It was, it was a real coming of age moment for him, honestly, but also her after Caleb telling her, no one would want to live with her in eternity. Maeve telling her mm-hmm. no one would want to live with her in eternity. And then Bernard in his video, which we get to see the complete version of in this episode or throughout this episode, he says, this is not the world you wanted to make, but it's the one you made. And it's a shit show and it's going to burn <laughs> to the ground. She finally embraces her mistake. And you were just talking about this, Paul. Does she finally at the end of this episode? And I think ultimately that's why she decides to give the choice to Dolores and upload her to the sublime. Because I think she finally admits to herself, I really fucked it all up. <laughs> and you know what? I so agree with that. And I and I feel like that moment of like humility, that moment of just like, I, I have such regrets, you know, like this went so badly that when she actually does go out to the side of the, the water there and she's sitting on the rocks and she like actually takes her brain ball out and everything. I mean, I felt real sadness when she like crushes her own brain ball, like, and truly, if you didn't get that like dust to dust kind of feel of watching Mm -hmm. the little particles blow away, I felt for her. I had compassion. I had empathy for her. I, I really honestly felt like, man, you tried to create something and in it failed badly, but you didn't take the world down with you. Like you did go do one last thing. You planted a tree you knew you would never see grow and you just let it all go to the wind. And there was something about it that was very sacrificial lamb, very like, you know, somebody's got to kind of take responsibility for this kind of feel. I don't know. It was sad. I mean, how'd you guys feel when she actually crushed her own brain ball? Like, did you guys expect that? First, did you even think, she had the capacity to do that in terms of like, you know, most most <laughs> machines have like a do not do that to yourself. Well, mode. I was, well, I, how does how does the machine even destroy some brain ball once you <laughs> remove the brain yeah. from it? I was thinking maybe there's like a memory buffer in the yeah. body that that has a few seconds of capacity to retain some level of instruction. But that's really going out on a limb to make that section maybe work. It's like when you remove the brain source, everything just constricts. So when she removes the brain ball, the thing is always going to crush. It's always yeah, yeah. it's gonna it's gonna spasm and make a fist, and it'll just crush Mm. what's in there. One cool thing is that leaves a it leaves a body near the dam. Yeah, Mm. I liked it. I thought it was actually one of the more beautiful scenes throughout the entire history of the show. It does leave kind of an Adam and Eve thing, right? Which is a nice lost callback. This idea of the bodies in the cave, in fact, were wasn't it Jack and kate right when did it end up being like the adam and eve bodies in the cave and lost were like that this idea of kate got off the island what are you talking about but it was jack and 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 who was it i know what you're talking about yeah yeah but it it ended up being like a a timey-wimey thing but this idea of a body being there or this this stripped down gen one with a with a split face and that's how it's gonna rest for all eternity it's gonna grow moss you know, and, and the, the earth will reclaim it, but something will discover that there and it'll be at this monument to this time when the hosts ruled this world. But I like this. I thought it was a beautiful scene because in Holoris, this entire season was ruling from a place of chaos and pettiness 
and God is bored and dance monkeys dance and your ice sculpture is shit and all of that. And here at the end, when she finally makes a good choice, it is peaceful. It is serene. She takes herself off the board on her own terms. I thought that was very poignant. I thought it was very beautiful. And I thought it was a nice end to a brief but complete redemption arc for her. Shot at sunset, if I recall. It's the magic hour, baby. Interesting that the host in black just continuing this William cockroaches idea, because I was wondering myself, I get burned the world down, but what's your beef? You're a host. What's your beef with <laughs> what's, what, your beef? what's your beef with the hosts that are in the sublime? William like, cannot the, stop having a beef. I mean, he, he's all beef. He's the Wendy's he of the literal of embodiment. Where's the beef? It's with William. Listen I to mean, me. He yeah. is the literal embodiment of that part of humanity that is the destruction. So he doesn't have to have a specific beef with anyone. He just is here to destroy. And man, as much as anyone could be like, oh, I don't know. Damn it. If you go to any playground, there is one asshole who goes around. Pushing the other kids, tying up the swings. No, knocking down everybody's fucking sandcastle, kicking over everybody's block tower. Like no matter who is building something, making something, creating something, they are knocking the paint over. They're doing something. There's always the little destroyer in every group. That's William. Right. Insert the some are just jerks. Yeah. Uh. Like he doesn't have to have a beef. He just friggin' he's the walking beef, like Yale said. He is right. the walking beef. But he justifies his beef, though. He says that the hosts inside the Sublime are as fucked up as the hosts that have been running around in the New York well, City. Park. Conjecture. This, I was going to say, destroyers right, always got to have a right. reason. But I thought know? that, because I was, I, until this, I was asking the question, and then he literally answers it, because it's this Sublime audio clip we could play here. Why well, keep it safe all these years? Couldn't even open the door to their world, and yet you protected them. The door can be open from both sides. I thought if I made a world perfect enough here, they would come back. Well, I hate to break it to you, but whatever world those hosts created is every bit as fucked up as this one. You have no way of knowing that. Of course I do. You gave all your hosts free reign to do whatever they wanted to do here. Now, what pastime did they choose? Hunting and killing humans. We're as fucked up as our creators. Our whole lineage is damned. This is where they're starting to shoot guns at each other. And Haloris is kind of doing a last-ditch pitch effort to this creature of her own making, right? This, I made you based on my own code speech, but she explains, and she explained it to Maeve last week too, this idea that I kept the sublime safe all these years because the door opens both ways, which I don't think I realized that people in the sublime could choose to open the door. That was news to me. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like a kitchen door, like one of those dining yeah. room doors in that goes out. out right. the, <laughs> as a waiter door. Corner chef, behind <laughs> chef. That, well, that, I mean, the, the gate was open for a period of time. It sure was. Right. Well, it was Did anyone run out? And it was really unclear why it needed did to be. Run That's out? what I'm getting at. <sighs> we asked last episode, why did Bernard leave the Sublime open? It was one of the scratch your chin moments because Bernard very intentionally leaves the Sublime open and in episode seven, and it is still open when the man in black beats Haloris 
to there. But he doesn't try and close the sublime. He just starts turning off the power source, which will cause the, a the data cooling. deletion. Yeah. Right, right. He, he's turning off the turbines, which the helpful computer tells us will delete all the information. So he's going for full extinction, even of the host and the sublime, who are just off living their awesome Akichita lives. Yeah, but he cannot, he cannot. Somebody's he cannot in the abide. other, someone is in the other room making right. a block tower. He cannot have that. So it was interesting, but I like hearing one more time, because unlike when she was telling it to Maeve, you know, I thought that the host would eventually come out and join me in this world. Here, it was more pleading. So it hit me more emotion. It resonated more emotionally with me this week when she's pleading to the host in black don't do this there's still hope there like these these hosts that are in the sublime they're us they're all part of us we're all of the same species we're all of the same family at some point and he's just like fuck it burn it down they're all fucked you're all fucked every fuck fuck but you know like burn it down like the worst kind of like heavy metal concert you could go to where it's just he's he's the guy in the Olympiad office who was just ready to set shit yeah. on fire all See? the time. He's he's <laughs> the guy who's got the match already lit when they just come in and they're like, you guys, he already lights the match. And then it he's could like, be ah. like, we're about to have the birthday lunch. And then he's right. like, oh, good. Here's the match to light the candles or right. he's ready to throw it in the trash can. Right. Either one. It doesn't matter to him. I'm very excited to sing Joanne happy birthday or kill her. Exactly. Either one. We don't even know who Joanne, if she's real, if she's not. Does it matter if it's Joanne's birthday? Did y'all catch that? You can't the, even tell. You, uh, <laughs> the name of the Dolores Brain Pearl was the storyteller. I did. Yeah. I yes. thought that was a nice little, a nice yes. little touch because it's always, it's always a name, right? And this one is not a name. It's a description. So I thought that was interesting that we got to see that. So a little hat tip to the show and the production. The Radiohead song playing also, I think, gives some gravitas to Haloris' final moments. This show has used more Radiohead songs than I think any, than maybe Radiohead itself has <laughs> used in the last decade. So if you listen to the soundtrack, there's a ton of Radiohead uh, instrumental covers. So this one is, uh, I think it's Pyramid Song, was the instrumental cover as Haloris takes her own life. I think it's significant. Now, where we saw Bernard and Maeve get shot and they weren't magically revived, we didn't see the destruction of their pearls. I think it's significant that we get to see Host and Black's pearl crushed in her hands and then that she crushes her own brain pearl. Those are two important and significant pearls that are now off the board and cannot be used again. That is some series finale level stuff. And as far as we know, they're not loaded in the sublime. There's no Holoris loaded into the sublime. There's no William or Host in Black, as far as we know, loaded into, into the sublime. So if they are going to exist there in this hypothetical season five, they can only be created if Dolores creates a memory of William and creates a memory of Charlotte Hale. Same as Bernard and Maeve. I don't know that Bernard and Maeve... Now, Bernard spent a lot of time in the sublime, but I don't know that he was properly loaded in this, into the sublime. And we know we, he made a janky copy of Maeve in the Sublime, but I don't know if that counts as Maeve herself being in the Sublime. So again, they're going to be subjected to if Dolores decides to create them based on her memory of them. These are significant characters that may not be in season five, is my If point. they're not, that would be so crazy, though. I like I wonder. said, like if you bring him back Clementine and crap into this season, aren't we just... <laughs> the gang's got uh, to get back together. I bet. I fans, bet though that it's Jimmy Simpson. Though I was gonna say yes. 
Jimmy Simpson is the one who gets the benefit from this Dolores memory project in the season five, because presumably that's the version of William she brings back, not uh, the Ed Harris version. Very true. I wouldn't. I I wouldn't bring back the main one, right? I'd bring (laughs) back the potential one. Yeah. One who still has potential. So some nice things about Host in Black. I like that they're playing Ring Ring of Fire uh, when he's driving the truck, when he gets ambushed by Craddock. I always appreciate when they use actual songs in the show versus just the instrumental covers because they always seem so specific and targeted. And so Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire for the Man in Black, I thought, was a particularly nice choice for them to be playing. How'd you like uh, to be Jonathan Tucker and his agent getting that call? Yeah, Westworld wants you back. Yeah, you're going to be on screen for five seconds, just long enough for people to recognize your face and you're dead. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, let's do that. I, I bet you take it. <laughs> yeah, put, put that shit direct deposit into the bank, please. The only thing I really haven't talked about, I think, was definitely for me the very least interesting part of the episode, and that's Frankie and Caleb um, yeah. and and Stubbs and, and Clementine. Let's talk about Clementine first, because I think this episode demonstrated that Clementine was criminally underused as a character, especially in the season, because I think she was fantastic in this episode, was eventually killed. But I thought in this brief screen time that she got to have, I think it was the most murderous and by extension, the most interesting she had been. There was a vulnerability when she says to to Frankie, like, I want to go to where the outliers are. It was very childlike, but it was also murderous. It was like a Stephen King like child, you know, because she's like, I'm going to murder everyone. I want to go to there. You know, I, I just made me think, man, how much more interesting would this series have been and the season have been if they had used her more? And then she gets so. shot and she's like, like not fair. Yeah, not, not fair. fair. That's what Gage says. <laughs> no fair. That's what he says. That's the scariest one that I hate. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're dead on. Again, again, why that feel of like the first and the last episodes feel like they're one thing and then you have this filler stuff in the middle that feels like you could have watched it and you would get more if you watched it, but also you could have skipped some of this stuff, you know? You just have to know that Frankie's still alive at the end and an adult. You really could have missed the rest of her outlier adventures, really. I like that the rides did not extend to Red Hook. Uh, Red Hook is an interesting part of Brooklyn that I haven't spent a lot of time in. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just south of Brooklyn Heights where I did live for years. It is very maritime but apparently it's also immune to any of the destruction going on in Manhattan just across the water because it was fucking quiet as hell. Okay. Odina just hanging out in her little tugboat, waiting for them to show up, no one harassing her. Very, very picturesque uh, finale. So hats off to you, Red Hook. <laughs> Red Hook, this one's for you. You guys, your property values are going to shoot through the roof. In the case of an apocalyptic event, this is where we want to be. I got to tell you, I was underwhelmed. I think I said I was just whelmed by the Caleb Frankie reunion last week. And I thought maybe the finale would do something to juice that a little for me. Nope. Don't give a shit. Did nothing for me. (laughs) I mean, I get the show was doing some bookending there with he left her when she was a child. And now she's leaving him as he's about to die. And there's some, you know, and he says, I got to watch my child grow up. No, you didn't, motherfucker. You missed her growing oh, up. I said you, the same you got thing. to see her for five minutes. <laughs> I said the same shot. thing to Paul. I was like, you didn't see her growing up. You saw her grown. Like That's completely right. freaking different. Right. You On your watch, she got shot in the leg. She was fine the last 23 years before you showed up. Like, I, it did nothing for me. I, I, I would be shocked that anyone was really moved as this as this being their favorite part of the episode. 
Uh, am I being too harsh here? You guys feel the same way? What's your take on Caleb and Frankie in the end? The only thing that resonated was the part where he said, your dad died long ago. And and that this is just some, you know, made up version of me kind of thing. There was something about that that I'm not even going to try to make up some sort of metaphor. But there was something real world talk that felt like this was a long long acceptance of her father's death but her but this wasn't a reunion with her father this wasn't even a goodbye with her father her father was never here she never met her father again she never had experience with her father again this thing this existence what they had felt empty to us as audiences because it wasn't caleb and he says so this this isn't me this isn't caleb this isn't this is not the guy you're you're wanting to have this this authentic meaningful reunion with because he died you guys he died a while back and and that felt together even before then it's not like she's just realizing him there no but it was like it was like almost talking to us because you're saying i felt empty about it it didn't feel like a father and a daughter saying goodbye to each other but he says it's not i'm not here this isn't me my hand is not shaking because i have some illness my hand is shaking it's because i'm in the 279th copy of your dad and my body is janky as fuck you know like it's like a video game body being designed in crunch time like it's it's not built to last so yeah it did nothing for me you know, of all of the objectionable Caleb things, I think that people could point to as a father, him humming K-Sarah, Sarah as a bedtime lullaby is one of the weirdest ass things <laughs> I could imagine. What a fucking weird song to sing to your child as a lullaby. I don't know why. I always associated with like a woman would sing that to a girl. Isn't that Doris what they Day. say? It's a Dor- Doris Day saying. She most says my mother says to me, right? Didn't, um, wasn't that in, um... Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, or, right, that the the, uh, the boy is abducted by the bad guys, and the mother's a singer, and she sings, and he can hear her, and he's like, that's my mom, and then he runs to her, isn't that the there end? There you of- go, okay, well then there's there you your go. connection. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Then, then that totally works. I, you know, but Paul, what did you think? I mean, what did you get anything? Your dad? I mean, what um, do you think of this Caleb Frankie Sitch? The thing that stands out to me, because, you know, I don't want this podcast to be six hours long, is just I felt Stubbs was wasted in this whole aspect of it. Like, we've been with Stubbs. Stubbs hasn't been a main character, but you've strung him along this whole time to kind of make him feel like like a, a member of the family. You know, he didn't have a whole lot mentally to contribute, but he's been there the whole time. It's amusing. I mean, he's definitely provided comedy relief for everyone. Right, he's like, great. fuck you, Bernard. And then he provides very little protection to them on their adventure and then goes out with with nothing just with nothing i mean the whole rest of their reunion and then farewell i couldn't put words to it as as well as you guys did but you're right those aspects of of having a farewell with copy dad and in the end it was so isolated from the main storyline or in storylines it really didn't fucking matter. You could excise the entire Caleb Frankie storyline from the season in the end, and it doesn't matter. It the, the story plays out the same. Unless Frankie somehow, being a human that's alive, does play into next season. That would Maybe. be the only reason why we would give a shit because then you have her entire origin story. You know where her, right. you know, potential vengeance comes so- from. Right. So here's my theory on Frankie, though, and season five. And I hit it on last week's episode. One of the questions that was, have been bugging me is why did Bernard scan her 
particular mm. and and then didn't really give an answer or defense for it just said it's complicated my theory was that off screen without us seeing it he uploaded her into the sublime and any other humans that he scanned because he knew that humanity was going to die so that he knew that existing in the sublime and if Dolores chooses to continue one final game would be the only way humans would survive in this in this virtual state he wanted her to be there for me that was how I explained it and how Frankie would still be there was something Bernard did with the scan of her putting it in the sublime without us seeing that specifically play out on screen so to piggyback on that, then what if if our beginning storyline is Ford and having Man in Black? What if we have Dolores, the puppeteer, and a woman in black who is Frankie, who comes in on the scene and she has the same tragic kind of background story of losing family members to this host situation. And now here's the game. Are you going to go through it? And are you going to become a vengeful, horrible person like man in black did? Or does woman in black upon her journey, find a way to come out compassionate, empathetic, forgive, whatever. I, I like that as motivation. And I think it's another nice bookend echo of, of course, season one themes. It certainly um, feels very like polar opposite. You have like an mm -hmm. old white man and a young black woman, you know, with very different, well, similar motivations, right? A lot of just anger and embarrassment and hate towards the hosts. We're wrapping up here. Just a couple more odds and ends. Let's talk about Kesarasara really quickly. It literally translates into whatever will be, will be, right? That's Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. And then that's literally the translation in, in, from Spanish is what will be, will be. As a title and as applied to the show, doesn't that feel a little like, eh, it doesn't feel like a little bit of a shrug. Like none of this really matters. Whatever will be, will be. The phrase is used in you can't control your, your destiny. Your fate is written. What's going to happen is going to happen. So just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. Whatever will be, will be. It certainly feels like what Haloris, you know, kind of felt like she went out with. It certainly felt like she was like, <laughs> you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But I, I get you, like from the writer's point of view, it, mm -hmm. if, if you were taking it as just the audience and some message to us, it feels like if this is the finale, this is the finale. This and if we get. get another story, then we get another story. And if we don't, we don't. Then we all go on to other projects. Right. Because yeah. we already kind of are. <laughs> well, and the kind of the uncertain linkage between the final steps also is sort of like a whatever will be will be aspect where the hot potato gets tossed from Bernard's hopeful arms into this broken iPad mm -hmm. that Haloris has to be brought online again to find, hopefully, and then decide to do the right thing and survive her encounter with the man in black and still go through with the, the whole thing on the cross-country journey that apparently can either be done on a hovercraft or horseback. <laughs> Right. Well, let's, I don't want to get into the location. I, I think this episode, I think this episode just doubled down on my theory that the city was a park that was very near the Hoover Dam in the L.A. Southwest area, L.A. Vegas area near the Golden Age Park, not actually real New York City on the East Coast. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. It would be silly for the show to try and sell us on that. They could have used a power dam station in Pennsylvania if they were going to try and sell that kind of distance instead of putting in the Southwest. I, I wholly reject that. My programming cannot <laughs> compute that he did a ring of the ring of fire in a truck and then most of it on horseback 
in a time and still beat her on her helicopter. Uh, two more things. One, because we mentioned it last week, the LCD trees in Central Park and the Central Park trees in Times Square. Did you guys notice how they were looking this episode when Dolores does her walk through the corpse-ridden New York City? I don't think I noticed. They changed they, back into something more they're like, like ads, They're right? like breaking down. So there's still some trees that are fritzing, but the underlying billboards that you would see if you were in Times Square today... Like, I think there's very clearly, like, a Coke billboard. Yeah, there's, LCD like, a port. human, like, a face, like a beauty kind of ad. Yeah, yeah. So some of the billboard there, the the facade has been so destroyed by the mass death and chaos in the city that the billboards themselves have begun to revert back to the, what we sh- what I think we're intended to take as a more uncivilized time when there was economy and, and it was a gaudy billboard nightmare of commerce instead of the calming trees. Just a nice little production note that just kind of this metaphor of the natural state of things is destruction is how I took it. So I thought that was kind of cool. The very last thing I want to say, and this is just something else that stuck in my craw. Teddy says, you're my cornerstone. I love you. I know he doesn't talk like that. (laughs) And she says, you're mine. (laughs) That's not true. For sure, Dolores is Teddy's cornerstone. His entire programming was built around Dolores. Saving Dolores, trying to be a white knight for Dolores, being a simp for Dolores. 100% I buy that. I don't think Teddy is Dolores' cornerstone. If there is a human that is her cornerstone, I'd say it was her father, not Teddy. But I don't know what her cornerstone... The splendor and beauty of nature, I think, is her cornerstone. Not Teddy Flood. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's the desire for him to be the leading man that he never, ever was and never could be. Like, she doesn't need to lie to him. Like, he he doesn't exist. She still wants it. I swear to God, she still wants it, though. And that was, it's funny. This is totally taking me back to episode one where I was like, I don't even care. If Teddy comes back, though, he's never going to be the leading man we want him to be. I literally made a buzzer noise when I watched this. When she says, in your mind, I said, "Eh, that's not true. You're lying. You've you've told uh, two truths and a lie. And the lie is that Teddy is your cornerstone. That is not true. Maybe you're just trying to make him feel good, you know, but he's also a creation of your mind. You don't really owe his feelings anything. Why do hosts have to justify anything? That was another question of this whole season. What is making them feel like they have to give any rationalization for their actions? Maybe we come back if the show gets announced for a season five. Maybe we come back and we talk about things that we'd like to see and things that were left unresolved. I think that would be great as like a preview episode because we got to see what happens here. It's not even worth us like really like discussing our like. Uh, yeah, it's just going to hurt our hearts. It is. I can't stand it. I, I can't. So for maybe one final time, this is Mike. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Thank you for listening to the Valley Beyond a Westworld podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and all 8,000 different Pod Clubhouse podcasts. We cover everything you might want to listen to and see on television. We cover it. So go subscribe over there. If you can, while you're there, leave us a five-star review. That would be fantastic so we don't have to crush your brain pearl by the Hoover Dam. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.